So Hebrews chapter 8, starting at verse 1, right through to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up in its first room with a lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed, as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. 
the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean how much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God thanks Rupert and um, if you could keep your Bibles open, either on your phones or uh, in, the, in the blue Bibles that we've got out here, open on that page, that'd be great. And um, it's always interesting, where it's a huge passage, and I appreciate as we've been looking through Hebrews, we've had some big chunks of text that we're looking at. So um, I appreciate there's a lot in there, and I'm not going to be able to cover all the points, but I hope as we look at this, there will be things that the Lord lays on your heart, wherever you are with him today, that uh, move you on and encourage you. I'm always struck at the speed at which tech advances. It's mind-blowing, really. Um, You think of mobile phones that we carry around uh, with us now, that they have, the, the phones, an average phone that we have now has more processing power than the computers that spent, uh, sent a space rocket up to the moon. And I wouldn't be surprised if Apple or Microsoft or Samsung uh, adopt the second part of chapter 8, verse 13. What is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear as they keep their phone race and tech race going. Could be part of their vision statement. But are we trapped? in that never-ending cycle of inbuilt obsolescence and looking for the next best thing? Is that something that sort of we buy into in life, or it's just there a better relationship, a better home, a better salary, a better body, a better family, better holidays, better religion, better lasting legacy? These aspirations and desires might be expressed differently, but they've been held in humanity's mind and heart for many millennia. And into that noise, God's words declare to us that the very best is here. We saw this last week, and I'll just remind you of it. Chapter 7, verse 24. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And then in verse 28, perfect forever. You see, the message is the best has come. There will not be a better upgrade or update. If there's one thing you take away from this letter to the Hebrews, it's this. Jesus really is the best. And in this section here from chapter 7 through to chapter 10, the pastor is digging, deliberately digging deeper to help the Jewish Christians who are his original readers in the first century facing trials and persecution to grow in maturity of faith. And that is of help to us today, to spur us on, to grow us in mature faith, to see that all Jesus has done has secured eternity for us that we're in God's family. Their security and our security rests in him. And I've got two points that we'll look at today. The first is this, that a better place for Jesus' work is here. There is a better place for Jesus' work to continue. Uh, Have a look at at chapter 8, verses 1 to 6 with me. 
Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human beings. Now, that's a headline approach for us to see where we're going. Where is Jesus? I I hope that each of you, when you think about it, can think of someone who's been a key mentor, someone who's got alongside you, whether that's a teacher, a coach, a relative or parent, someone who's invested in you, who cares about where you're going, your career, who's added value to you. It's a reassurance, isn't it, having someone like that around, someone you can follow, someone you can see living out their life, whether it's at work or whether it is in family context, someone who invests in you. But the day comes, isn't there, when the mentor moves on. I remember someone who was close to me, trained me when I was working in London on youth ministry, and I can remember him announcing he was leaving. Three and a half years we'd worked together, and it came as a real shock and surprise, and there's both that joy and that sadness of someone moving on. But that's what mentors do. They go. Mentors move on. And here in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 8, the pastor writing wants to reassure his readers that the good news is that our King and Saviour has moved on. Jesus has gone to a unique location where only he can go. He's out of sight, but we're not out of his mind. Verse 2. He serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by the mere human beings. And the same point is made if you look at chapter 9, verse 11, that at his ascension, Jesus passed through the greater, more perfect tabernacle into God's presence on our behalf. And he's there in heaven, our perfect priest right now serving. We're not to be anxious that we can't see him. Even NASA's James Webb telescope that's up there getting ready to show us these amazing pictures from the edge of the universe and going further as far as it can, that telescope won't find his throne room because it's not part of this creation, we're told. It will be unveiled, that throne room, in glory and splendor when Jesus returns. And so now in the present age, he's in the best workplace. He's with God the Father representing to us, as we saw again last week, representing his people in the central control room of the universe, praying for us in line with his perfect will, sustaining us in his mission with all the power of his resources. Isn't that a tremendous, tremendous assurance to us in the face of ideas that we're just all alone in a cold, uncaring universe? which is inevitably heading for collapse. We have a king at the throne room who is out of sight, but we're not out of his mind, who will come again. And just as a side note on this, I listened to a helpful uh, podcast this week, and I I just sort of uh, put it out there as well. I think, Ali, I've put a a slide there, but it's by Pastor John Piper. And he was asked the question, where is heaven now? And it's a a really interesting conversation that he has there. So just sort of throw that out to you if it's something on your mind as we talk about where the throne room is and how we handle that as believers. But we can have absolute confidence that Jesus' work is effective because we're told in verse 1 again, something we've picked up before, he is seated Jesus is seated. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus' posture of sitting down says his work is completed. His sacrifice has been accepted. It is the physical expression of his triumphant cry from the cross. It is finished. 
So in the throne room he is sat. And the fact that Jesus is seated in the tabernacle, that is, he's in the true tabernacle, one that isn't made by human hands. And this shows, this picture here shows the great contrast and insufficiency of the old covenant, which is the big point the pastor's going to make now in chapters 8, 9, and 10. In saying that Jesus serves in the true tabernacle, the writer isn't saying that what's gone before was a false or, or, or a lie. It's that this is the true, the ultimate reality, in contrast to the earthly and the transient copy of the meeting tent Moses set up. The image of copy and shadow is a really good picture there in verse 4 for us to hold on to as we go through these chapters, and especially as we look at the issue of covenants. Now, I appreciate covenant isn't necessarily a word we use in everyday language, and it's definitely one of those big Bible words that we have to get our heads around. And it simply means an agreement that is binding between two parties. Uh, biblical marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman. Uh, promises are made publicly. Rings are exchanged as a sign of our love. Um, they're a sign of commitment and faithfulness to the other person, whatever circumstances. They commit to common goals in marriage, to loving each other, serving, being hospitable, uh, where possible, raising children. Serving others. And doing all of this fueled by love, recognizing we're flawed people. At the heart of Christian marriage is the dependence on God's grace, his love, his hope being the foundation of our lives. And marriage is a covenant that God uses as a picture to talk about his relationship with us, with people. Um, the book of Hosea is a real-life drama of this theme. Through the prophet Hosea, God shows that he is a faithful, loving husband pursuing his wife, Israel, the people of Israel, and restoring them into a relationship with him. So those biblical covenants have God as the senior partner in the agreement. He's the one who initiates the promises. He moves first to bless, to redeem, to save his people. And his promises are to be a blessing to them in their lives. There are also consequences for obedience and disobedience. And ultimately, the disobedience and that consequence is seen in the Old Testament with the exile, where Babylon came in and took God's people away from Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and they were carried off away from the promised land for 70 years. And God made these binding promises with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David. Those covenants continued always going further and further, bringing blessing to more and more people. And again, here's another resource, um, which uh, I've got a slide for. Thanks, Ali. If you wanted to look a little bit more into the covenants, this great little video by The Bible Project. If you go to YouTube, um, Bible Project, and then just put in the search engine covenants, you'll come up with one of their videos, which helps explain this again, which um, is five, six minutes well invested. But now here, in chapter 8 and 10, the pastor explicitly referring to the covenant made to Moses, which included the law given at Sinai in the, after the Exodus where they were rescued from Egypt. Let's have a look at what the writer says here in verse 4 of chapter 8. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. You see, central 
to this promise that had been given to Moses and God's people was a worship system. Not just the, the law of God's word of how to live in relationship, but central to that, a worship system that involved a tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And that became the heartbeat of the camp. It was right at the center as a sign of God's presence, of how people could live in relationship, in communion with the Lord God. And it had the Levitical priesthood, the sacrificial system, right at the heart of it. And that tabernacle became the temple that Solomon built. Uh, right in the heart of Jerusalem. And again, here's another slide just with a bit of a picture to help you uh, visualize how this tent would have looked in its splendor. And if you look over at chapter 9, verse 6, you can see how these, the themes weave in as, uh, of these two chapters. We get there, the writer giving us an outline of what are the central features in verses 1 to 6 of the tabernacle. Verse 6, when everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry out their ministry. The tabernacle, therefore, was a constant hive of activity and a workplace that was always on the go. But there was one specific day that the writer here focuses on, the Day of Atonement, described in Leviticus chapter 16. So in verse 7 here of chapter 9, that's what he has in mind when he says, but only the high priest, and on the PowerPoint there's a little high priest outside the tent of meeting, and he would go into the inner chamber where you can see the ark, that second curtain separating the most holy place. But the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. You see, all of this tells us, this outline, this, this process, that what we've been looking at as we're building into Hebrews is that the, you just can't stroll into God's presence. You can't just pitch up casually. It's costly. The Day of Atonement was designed to allow Moses' brother Aaron and then the high priest who followed him to enter to make these offerings for the forgiveness of people's sins and for himself, the high priest, Sin needed to be dealt with. And so as magnificent and as breathtaking as this tabernacle was, it is only a shadow. Think how amazing that is for, for these original hearers to hear that. This stuff is shadow-like. And the word pattern there in verse 5 meant that there was more than verbal instruction. It was very likely that it denoted some sort of model, an illustration, as well as the explanation that Moses was privileged to have seen, to then be able to impart that. And models are important. They are important. I don't know how many of you have been to Legoland. Um, it is a very good day out. I warn you, the queues are a bit of a nightmare. But um, again, if, um, Ali, if you can flick on. If you, can, if you go to Legoland, there's this excellent bit called Miniland. Apparently, 14 million bricks have been used or, or, on this part of their park. And obviously, there are these landmark places that are, are re replicated. And, and here's St. Paul's Cathedral. I think you can see the London Eye and Big Ben in the background as well. But you could go and you could stand next to St. Paul's Cathedral in Legoland and have your photo there. But it's a, it's a great copy. But you couldn't say you've been to the real thing. You don't get that gut horrendous feeling that I did when I was at the top of St Paul's on the external balcony doing this stuck to the wall 
you don't get the breathtaking wow factor of seeing that architecture in real life. No, the Legoland, as good as it is, is a shadow of the real thing. But here's the thing, even St. Paul's Cathedral, with everything that's gone on there over centuries of worship and, and the building itself, what would be said here is even that's a shadow. That isn't the ultimate. And the writer here to the Hebrew Christians, thanks, Ali, if you want to flick on, um, doesn't want their, his readers, his Christians, he doesn't want us to settle for less. As real as the temple in Jerusalem was, the stone, the wood, the gold, the elaborate worship, the smoke, the incense, the feasts, it couldn't go deep enough. All of it, though, was pointing to one person. All of it was pointing to Christ. So the menorah lampstand that we read, whose light was never to go out, had to be refueled by the priests constantly. The 12 loaves that are mentioned in Leviticus 24, the bread of presence that's mentioned here, were baked and eaten every week and continually replaced. These objects, they find their true meaning in, the, in Jesus as he identifies himself as the light of the world in John 9, of the bread of life in John 6. He didn't just pick these illustrations out as good ideas. He's saying all of this stuff that you see and know and have been given finds its ultimate in me. And at the heart of it is this Ark of the Covenant. As one writer describes, the Ark is like a memory chest. It's like a little history of Israel. The tablets of the law, Aaron's staff, the, the manna reminded people of God's presence, of his power, of his provision. And capping it all was the mercy seat on top. And, and this was a picture of God's throne. It was nothing less than a symbol of Christ and his work as our sufficient saviour, bearing the wrath of God in his life-giving sacrifice. And the whole difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant could be summarised with those two words in chapter 9, verse 8. Two small words, but so important. Not yet. Not yet. Do you have full access to the holy God? The Old Testament, with its wonderful worship system, would say, not yet. But a time is coming when the door would be finally open, enabling everyone who draws near to go into his presence. And Jesus' shed blood on the cross was the cost for that new covenant. He promised his closest followers as they ate the last supper on that Passover night, with the wine they drank, Jesus declared, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is my blood of the new covenant, poured out for many. This is the sign. Even this reality points to a deeper, ultimate reality. His blood shed, which we'll look at in more detail next week as we go into chapter 9 and chapter 10. That's the key to a deeper work that needs to happen in our hearts. You see, the problem with the first covenant is it wasn't that it was wrong, nor was it cold or harsh or just concerned with obedience. It was still a covenant of grace. It was still a gift. That It could make the Israelites ceremonially clean. They could do worship together. But it could not change a heart. 
And what we see in chapter 8, verse 8, that God found fault with the people. The old covenant showed up the issue that rested with sinful humanity. We couldn't keep our word. We're the faithless ones. We're the ones who wander away from the Lord. And that's why we need a deeper power for our hearts. And that's what we see here in verses 8 to 12 of chapter 8. Jesus' presence, his work in the heavenly throne room means that there's a new covenant that is in effect right now, and it's powerful. It's at work for all who come to him. And this new covenant was one that was promised by the prophet Jeremiah. This is where that quote comes from. The prophet Jeremiah, during the exile, during one of the bleakest times for Israel, gets this promise from God, this word of ultimate change. Uh, Again, the prophet Ezekiel at the same time received a similar word of the new covenant to come. And earlier, Isaiah prophesied these. And here we have it. Uh, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, quoted here in chapter 8, starting at verse 8. And the context is it was a chaotic time for the people hearing that message through Jeremiah. Uh, The nation was in shambles. It was divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, Israel, had been taken over by Assyria as a sign of judgment. Judah was uh, on the threat of the superpower Babylon coming in and crushing life. And the exile was on the horizon. Idolatry was rampant. Faithful believers who loved God were desperate for him to do something. And what do we see in this promise here? Comes out in verse 10 onwards as the Lord makes a declaration. Verse 8, the Lord says, I will. I will. He steps up to set things right for his family. Verse 8, I will make a new covenant. It starts with his people and expands to all the nations in that promise of Christ. Verse 10, I will put my laws in their minds I will write them on their hearts. They will all know me from the least to the greatest. You see, God provides a new power for his people. And writing the law on their hearts meant that through the Holy Spirit, people would be changed from the inside. That's where God's work needs to take place. And when we depend on Jesus Christ's obedience, his sacrifice, he takes up residence in us. He moves in. You see, the new covenant still involves obedience to God and his word. The difference is how we obey God. How does that happen? Jesus' perfect obedience, his righteousness, is counted to us when we trust him. All the requirements of God's law are fulfilled by him and counted to us. He's truly the perfect obedient person. And through God's spirit at work in us, that new heart, We're empowered to obey him. We're empowered to know him. Yes, teachers and pastors are gifts to help people grow in in the law of uh, God and to know God. No longer will they need their neighbours to say to one another, know the Lord. What's going on there is the the prophecy saying, no one's going to mediate God's knowledge to you. You can go direct. He speaks to you. Yes, you need each other to be Bible sharers and you can build each other up and you all have that responsibility. There's no no blockage. Each of you can encounter the living God and know him personally because you have a great mediator in Christ. He has changed everything. 
And why is that possible? That we are people that then are called to serve the Lord. Verse 12, can you see it there? For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. How is that achieved? Chapter 9, verse 14, can you see the links here? This is where the writer's mind, inspired by the Spirit, keeps drawing these things together. The new covenant promises, the work that Jesus has achieved. Verse 14 shows that forgiveness was achieved all through Christ's blood shed. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? On one occasion, Dr. Christian Barnard, the first surgeon ever to do a heart transplant, impulsively asked one of his patients, Dr. Philip uh, Blayberg, would you like to see your old heart? Sort of one of those things that medics do, I suppose. <laughs> and uh, the subsequent evening, the, the men were stood in the hospital room in Cape Town, South Africa, and Dr. Barnard went up to a cupboard, took down a glass container, and handed it to Dr. Blayberg. And inside the container was Dr. Blayberg's old heart. And for a moment, he stood there, stunned silence, looking at his organ. And the first man in history to have hold his own heart in his own hands, had 10 minutes chatting to the doctor about what happened and all the technical questions, but then he turned to take a final look at his heart in the jar and said, so this is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. This is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. And he handed it back and left it there. I think this, in essence, is what Christ does for us. We still have the same heart, but it's radically new. God has written his laws within us if we've come to him. Now by faith, we're united to Christ. By the Spirit's work on our hearts and minds, God will, his will, his commands, become our own. We want to pursue them. There is a change of direction. They're no longer external. They're no longer foreign, but internal. As the Apostle Paul wrote, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's what we will celebrate with those baptisms in a few weeks' time. We're grieved when we fail and when we let the Lord down because of our sin. Yes, we battle with that fleshly nature, his will or mine. But deep down, we're saying, I want to go your way. In Jesus, we have a sympathetic high priest. We've been told that earlier. He knows our struggles. His blood has cleansed us. And so, therefore, we have confidence to approach his throne. Chapter 4, verse 16. Now, can you see that that is a better promise? And here are just two quick implications for us from this passage. I think firstly, you need to uh, know where Jesus is so you don't lose heart. Ali, if you could just flick it on. Thank you. The we will bit is that we won't lose heart because we know where he is. We know what he's doing. 
Our King and Savior is in the place that truly counts. His sacrifice is complete. His, our salvation is secure because he is secure on the throne of grace. So then the question becomes, will you let that confidence radically shape how you're going to live here for the rest of your life? Everything's on the table. Everything counts. Where's that confidence? What areas of life is the Lord calling you to place more confidence in Jesus than yourself? Is it at work? Are there particular assignments at the moment? Are there particular relationships or issues that you're facing that you go, I've got to do this in my own strength, it's all on me? You might feel out of your depth. Well, God set you free to serve him and to serve him there. Bring that confidence into where he has placed you. Is it a particular anxiety or worry? Is it health, finances, or a family member that you keep holding on to that you want to be in control of and it's consuming you and you need to prayerfully, lovingly, give this to him who is on the throne? Where is your confidence in that anxiety? Is it the fear of rejection? If you shared something of your faith, of what really makes you tick, of the love for Jesus, that people would shun you, that they would turn away. Know where Jesus is so you don't lose heart. And then secondly, given how faithful God is in pursuing us and all that he has done for us to forgive us, consider honestly where you need to turn away from sin from those actions or attitudes that are damaging your relationship with Jesus and with others. Greed, gossip, lust, bitterness, envy, anger. However it raises itself. Don't settle for living in the shadows of sin, pretending they're not issues. Don't kid yourself that these don't matter. They do matter to God. His holiness is so intense, it's described as a consuming fire. He sees our sin, and yet his heart goes out to us. Isn't that wonderful? A God who can't tolerate sin, and yet his heart goes out to us and says, draw near. There's a way that it doesn't have to be the final word. That word, remember in Jeremiah 31, 34, is not a memory word. It's a promise word. Remember is a promise. It's a covenant word. God is promising that when we confess our sins, I will not treat you as your sins deserve. Instead, I will forgive you. That is a key promise for us. And I was convicted on this point, really preparing this sermon, this, this point of forgiveness. And just how shadow-like and weak my forgiveness to others can be when I'm called to more. And I've been reading Corrie Ten Boom's book again, The Hiding Place, which is a wonderful read. I recommend it. And convicted by this passage. And the context is that Corrie and her sister Betsy are, are prisoners in Ravensbrück in the death camp. And it's towards the end of World War II, and they are there because they've been helping Jews escape from the Nazis in the Netherlands. And it's a freezing cold December, 4 a.m. roll call, and this happens. One dark morning, when ice was forming a halo around the street lamp, a feeble-minded girl, two rows ahead of us, suddenly soiled herself. 
A guard rushed to her, swinging her thick leather crop, while the girl shrieked in pain and terror. It was always more terrible when one of the innocent ones was beaten. Still, the guard continued to whip her. It was the guard we nicknamed the snake because of the shiny dress she wore. I could see it now beneath a long wool cape, glittering in the light of the lamp when she raised her arm. I was grateful when the screaming girl at last lay still on the cinder street. Betsy, I whispered when the snake was far enough away. What, what can we do for these people afterward? I mean, can't we make a home for them and care for them and love them? Can you see what's going on there? They're in a death camp and Corrie ten Boom is thinking about how they can bring restoration after the war, what we can do to change things. Then Betsy replied, Corrie, I pray every day that we will be allowed to do this, to show them that love is greater. It wasn't until, Corrie writes, I was gathering twigs later in the morning that I realized I'd been thinking of the feeble-minded and Betsy of their persecutors. That's the fruit of a heart changed by God's forgiveness. A new covenant heart heart that's prepared to allow that completed work of Jesus to rule everything of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you resting in your covenant promises. As the hymn writer said, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Father, create in us that new heart. Keep renewing us by your spirit that we would gladly serve you all the days of our lives in joyful service of all your purposes. And Lord, for those of us with doubts, with questions, maybe feeling far from you, would you show us that to uh, Live under this new promise. All that Christ has completed for us is the place of life-giving love and hope. Amen.